Well, again, it's good to have all of you with us today, and we are looking at, I think, what is the greatest topic that you could find in all of the Bible. How in the world could you ever go wrong if you're talking about Jesus? And we've been doing that in this series. We've been talking about Jesus, the person of Jesus, helping us with our fundamental understanding as to who he is and what, is, what does he do and why did he come into the world and why did God send him? And we're going to look at this fascinating passage today in one of the New Testament letters, and I'm so glad you're here for that. In fact, it's a passage of about six verses, and a lot of times when you've read through that, many of you have probably read through this passage before, and it sounds tremendous and it's very inspiring but maybe you've never really sort of taken it apart and really inspected it as we're going to do today. And I'm very excited to do that with you. And then right at the conclusion of this talk, the band is going to come back and we're going to have one more song together before we're done. You know, when we started this series, we started it a week ago or two weeks ago, actually. And in that first series, we talked about, uh, you know, what did Jesus teach? What was it about the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching? And we said in that very first week, talking about his teachings. Well, how did he teach? And it's very clear how he taught. The Bible says this again and again. It says that he taught with authority. In fact, it said that when people would hear Jesus teach, they would be in such awe and utter amazement. It would be like, we've never heard anybody say anything like this. He doesn't teach as the other teachers of the law. Jesus was not the first or the only rabbi to ever teach. There were other rabbis who taught and were teaching, but none of them taught the way that Jesus did. He taught with power. He taught with authority. Now, why did he teach? It's very simple why he taught. He taught to change lives. That was his mission. That was his mandate, to change lives. That was what his teaching was about. Who did he teach? He taught, we mentioned that in the very first week, he taught everybody. The very first rabbi to ever have a female disciple was Jesus. He did not have this exclusive club where he would only bring together the fellows, the guys, and he would teach them. He opened it up. He opened it up to women and children and those who had been marginalized by society. And, and he taught everybody. What did he teach? He taught the truth. Jesus, in fact, is the embodiment of truth. Uh, Jesus does not even have the potential of ever saying anything that is untrue. He doesn't have that capacity within his character and nature. Can I just pause having said that and tell you that the evil one, that the devil is the exact opposite of that. In fact, Jesus said about the devil, about the evil one, that he is the father of lies, that he has an inability to speak the truth. I've said this to many, many people over the years when they were like, you know, the evil one, he's harassing me and trying to intimidate me. I know that he's trying to speak discouragement into my life. He's trying to just fill me up with hopelessness. He keeps telling me, you know, all these things about me and my circumstances. And I've always said, if you know that it's the evil one trying to get your attention, if it's the devil that you know that is speaking to you, then you ought to know that you believe just the opposite of that because he cannot tell the truth. And Jesus told the truth all the time and he taught the truth. And when did he teach? He taught at all times. He gave these lessons along, life lessons, any moment, lessons in the here and the now, these life lessons, any time that they presented themselves to him. Well, that was week one. And then last week, we went to this uh, particular passage, this big event in the life of Jesus, where he's invited into this dinner party. Uh, we read about that in Luke chapter 14. And there's a lot of dynamics that is going on. And Jesus just keeps heightening the tension in the room. He just keeps bringing it up. And he talks about this sick guy. 
And and he looks at these religious elitists who should have cared so much about this man who was diseased in his body, but instead didn't really care about him much at all. And Jesus would say, really? I mean, you're looking at me as if I'm doing a terrible thing by healing this man on the Sabbath? Aren't you being hypocritical? Because if you have a sheep, if you have an odds, if you have them to fall in a ditch, on the Sabbath day, will you not rush to them and help them out? And you've got this big problem, really, with me healing this sick guy because it's the Sabbath? And he talked about this seed in the chart and how it was all misaligned and how it needed to be rearranged and how you don't come and take the high seats, you take the lower seats. And it was all about, you know, power and, and arrogance. And Jesus just wanted to decapitate that, really, that whole notion of thought and attitude within them. And then he ended up with this story about this spectacular banquet that happened, and they knew what Jesus was saying. Well, today uh, we're going to go to this utterly amazing passage of Scripture. It's found in the writings of the Apostle Paul, and these are words that give us a profound glimpse into the unmatched greatness as to just who Jesus really is. It's this brilliant writer and thinker. His name is John Stott, and in his book, The Radical Disciple has said this, He said, so we may talk about Alexander the Great and Charles the Great and Napoleon the Great, but not Jesus the Great, and he tells us why. He says, Stott does, he is not the Great, he is the only. There's nobody like him. He has no rival. He has no successor. And this is exactly, friends, what we have been talking about in this series, that nobody ever has lived the life that Jesus lived, not even close. Nobody ever taught the way that he taught. Nobody ever loved the way that he loved. Nobody ever cared the way that he cared. Nobody changed the world the way that Jesus has. And the extensive effects of how Jesus changed the world are still being felt some 2,000 years after he's re-entered heaven. So what I want to do in these next few moments, again, you've probably read the passage if you've been a Christian very long, but maybe you've never really isolated it and looked at it. We're going to do that. We will not be able, I wish we could, have the time to talk about every phrase within these six verses, but that would be a series within itself. But I want us to begin, again, this is uh, Colossians chapter 1, and I want us to look at the screen, and I want us to begin at verse 15. So here we go, verse 15. Let's get started. He, and we know that the he's been spoken about is Jesus. Uh, Jesus, Paul is saying, is the image of the invisible God. That matters a whole lot, and we'll come to that. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. A lot of people think, well, Jesus got his beginning, you know, in Bethlehem. But he was before all things. He was involved in the whole genius creative process in the beginning of time. He is before all things. And in him, all things, what are the last two words? All things, what? Hold together. We need to talk about that. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Look at the next part. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness, you think about this, to dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's amazing, amazing writings as Paul sets them into motion, of course, inspired of the Spirit. He starts at creation and he moves forward to redemption. And what I want to do in the remainder of our time 
together, I want us to inspect these verses. And what these verses are actually going to help us to do is they're going to help us to reach some conclusions concerning Jesus, because that's what this series is really all about. So let's go back, and we're going to not read through the whole passage, but just the first couple of verses. And we're going to talk about him for just a moment. Uh, Colossians 1, look at verses 15 and 16 now. Look at these verses. Jesus, or he is the, what's the word there? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. Now, right in the beginning, this is, uh, we won't have time to look at every single phrase, but this is a portion of this passage that you cannot afford to overlook. It matters so greatly. And that is, Jesus is the replica of God to this world. He really is. Jesus is the representative, the replica of God to this world. Now, this is a reality. And all of us need to know this, and all of us need to be able to intelligently articulate this in any kind of setting that we may find ourselves in, that this is the reality that sets Jesus apart from all others. In Jesus, in Jesus, like none other, we see who God actually is. We we see in Jesus that he is the creator, that he is the redeemer. As one Bible scholar has written, we see what God is like, a God of mercy and love. We see what God does one who sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and brings about the reconciliation of all creation through his death on a cross. Now, uh, Jesus, and I've I've mentioned this to you many times before, it's true of what we even talked about uh, last weekend, and that is Jesus, there was something about him that just agitated and infuriated those who were, again, maybe we would call them religious elitists, like the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law who should have been all embracing of Jesus, but instead they, they rejected the very one that God was sending to them. And they rejected him, and, and they found themselves set against Jesus. They found themselves in a position where they were opposing the life and work and, and ministry and the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus would make these statements that would just absolutely send them into orbit. He would talk about his identity and affinity with God. He would talk about and say things like, you know, I, I, I know that God has sent me, that God is my father. And then in John 14, 9, it's not on the screen, but in the latter part of that verse, Jesus makes this outrageous statement. One day there's a group gathered around him and they're like, Jesus, teach us, you know, show us. We need to know who is God. We embrace the Torah. We, we embrace the law. We've read the commandments. We know what it says, but reveal to us. Help us to profoundly understand who God really is. And then Jesus makes this outrageous claim. You know what he says? He stopped and he's like, all right, settle down, boys. You really want to know? You really want to know? And they're like, yes, you got to tell us. And then Jesus makes this statement. He said, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. And they're like, what? Really? And, and these elitists would hear things like that, and they'd, they're just like, you know what? We've got to get rid of him. I mean, look, blasphemy. Look at what he's saying. Look at what he's doing. But Jesus says, if anybody's seen me, he has seen the Father. And it was this kind of talk that caused Jesus to stay in major trouble all of the time. Outrageous claims that he was declaring, but you've got to say they were completely true. Jesus said, hey, take a look at me. Take a look at me. Okay, then, you've just seen God. Now, how many of you, how many of you have noticed this about yourself 
And how many of you are willing to admit, I know that you may be slow to admit this, but how many of you would say, you know what, I've heard it and I don't always buy into it, but I guess I probably do favor my parent a little bit at least. How many of you would say, you know, I've been told before or I even acquiesce to the reality that I may, if you're a female, favor my mom a little. Let me just see your hand. Wave at me like this so I know. Or you're a guy and you say, I've been told that I look like my dad. And, you know, we often bear the resemblance of our human parents. And my sister and I, my oldest sister and I have heard this all of our lives. And in fact, I told you uh, that last weekend I had to fly home, fly to Atlanta, because I promised a long time ago that I would do my grandmother's sister's a funeral whenever she passed. And I, I actually thought it was going to happen a lot sooner than it did. I mean, my grandmother's 86, and she's like the baby of the family. And Aunt Mary, uh, as we all called her, Aunt Mary, who I did her funeral service last Saturday, had just celebrated her 100th birthday like nine months before. And she lived a long time. And so while we were there, my sister and, and I, while we were there, we had these family members that we've not seen in a long, long time. And we're there at the funeral home there in the suburbs, Conyers, outside of Atlanta area. And, and we would have person after person that would walk up to us. And they would look at my sister and they'd say, you look, you look so much like your mom. Now, I know the reaction of my sister, what she said so many times. And I could almost like see her body language. It's like, Debbie, you look so much like your mom. And she'd be like, I mean, it wasn't quite that, you know, vivid, but, you know, knowing her, knowing what she said before. Now, how many of you, how many of you that you think that you bear or you've heard that you bear the resemblance of your parents? Uh, wave your hand at me again so I know who you are. Now, I've got to tell you, I know what you're already thinking because I've heard this kind of thing before. You were saying something like that. Even when I posed that question to you, in your mind, you immediately thought, okay, yes, I may look like my mom, or yes, I may look like my dad, but Jeff, I'm here to tell you, I, I'm, a, I'm a lot better looking than they are. <laughs> I know what you were thinking. That's exactly what you think. I may favor them, but I want to go on record. I'm much better looking than they are. I'd have people walk up to me and say, man, Jeff, I've not seen your dad in years, and I've not seen you in years. And my dad, you know, had passed away, you know, about a month ago, so of course he wasn't there. But they'd say, oh, heard about your dad, sorry to hear about your dad, but you look so much like your dad. Now, we've heard this our whole lives, and my sister would always utterly deny it. And so I loved it when she called me one day because we'd have a little fun with each other about that. And so she called me one day, and she said, I guess I really do look like mom. And I said, well, why did you now reach that conclusion? And she had gone to downtown Atlanta, and she was walking up to one of the big buildings there, and she was climbing the steps. And when she got to the top step and was headed toward the front doors, it was mirrored glass. And my sister said, as I was walking through the front of this building, I just sort of froze in my tracks, and I thought to myself, what is Mama doing here? <laughs> we told you, you look just like her. Now, we cannot compare Jesus to the, like the human physical manifestation as we would understand it, but he is the perfect revelation of the invisible God. And when you really pause and think about it, God was not, and you need to hear this, friend, that God was not completely content to just exist. What God wanted to do is he actually wanted to be understood in a way that his creation could embrace him. So they're saying, you know, like, show us the Father. We want to know God. We read about God. And what God wanted to do is not to be 
standing aloof from his creation, but to reveal himself in such a way that they could embrace him. So what did God do? God sent Jesus so that Jesus could make God known to the whole world. David Garland is a New Testament scholar, and he has written this, and you'll see it up on the screens. He says, as God's representation and representative, Christ brings, this important statement, Christ brings clarity to our hazy notions of the immortal, invisible God. And Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How could he say that? He could say it according to Paul because Jesus is the replica of God to this world. We saw that in verses 15 and 16. Now let's move into the next aspect of this passage. Verse 17. I want, to, I want you to read this with me, unless all of us read it together. How many of you, by the, by the way, you know, I understand that every weekend I communicate, I'm in a dark theater. These are very, very comfortable seats, I'm told, and I'm told that they'll even recline. So I need to know something. How many of you have already had your coffee? Could I just see, could I just see your hand? You've already, that's a good thing to know because I need your full engagement. And by the way, just on a side note, this has nothing to do with this message, but I decided to become a coffee drinker. I've gone my whole life. And, it, wow, I didn't know. I didn't know it was clapworthy. I would have become a coffee drinker much sooner than I did. But I decided to become a coffee drinker. So every day for the first time in my life, every day this week, I've had a cup of coffee. It's amazing. Shamefully, it's yet another vice that I now have in my life. So if you've had your coffee, then you're ready to read, I'm sure, with me. Verse 17, let's all read it together. Everybody, 100%. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, what is Paul saying? I want you to be sure you get this, the second thought. Jesus is the sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. He's the sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. Now, friend, I don't have to tell you this. You know this. You have this go through your mind all the time. And I quickly admit to you that it is very, very easy for us to become dismayed and troubled whenever we give cursory thought to this world which we live in. I mean, when you think about this world and you look around and you see and you hear, you know that this is a world that is filled with a tremendous amount of hate. There's so much violence. There's so much division. There's so much unrest globally, but not just globally, but also nationally. But then when we pause and we think more deeply, hopefully when we, when we think more deeply, we land on this reality that God did not simply create this world only to withdraw himself from it. It's not like God said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring into existence the heavens and the earth and the people and all that will occupy it. All right, here, done, six days, day of rest. I'm done. I've got, I'm moving on. I've got other things to do, bigger fish to fry. That is not so. Jesus continues to sustain it. He continues to sustain it, and you need to know this because if you don't, you, you will grow distant from what is true and what is reality, and you'll start thinking this world is so out of control. How will things ever get back on track? But you've just got to know that he sustains it right to this very moment. I love the way that one writer communicates this truth. He says it this way. I've never heard this thought before. He says that God keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. He keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. It's this old song. I'm sure, or I think maybe it was written by a Christian. I, I don't know the complete origin of the song, but a lot of you have heard it. Maybe you've sung it. 
Anybody here remember that song? He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's not just a song. He really does hold the whole world in his hand. Furthermore, can I tell you, he holds your life in his hand. By all things. And he sustains. You saw it in verse 17. He sustains all things. And in him, all things hold together. You ever hear somebody say something like this? Or have you ever thought about this in your own mind? I just feel like, have you ever said this? I just feel like I'm falling apart. I'm just coming apart at the seams. My life, I just feel like, I just, you know, you may, you may feel that. You may feel that. But God's not going to allow that to happen to you. He sustains all things in you. He holds all things together. Matt Locato has written this. Christ claims ultimate cloud, unshared supremacy. He steers the ship and pilots the plane. When he darts his eyes, oceans swell. When he clears his throat, birds migrate. Has anybody here, just curious, ever seen a college football game before? Can I just, you ever seen college football yeah, okay. I thought that might would be so. Have any of you, now it's, it's, it's this team, and um, I don't know how to say it. It's a team that God is very endeared to. God loves his team so much. Anybody, anybody have, have you heard of this team? The, it's, no. <laughs> listen, listen, there, there is not going to be any heresy allowed in this church. no. Listen, you got to draw the line. There's no heresy in this church. I heard what was said, and, and that's, that's anti-biblical. It's this team called the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, I, I said to some guys that were talking before the service, and gathered around, and, and uh, you know, the subject of college football, and I had walked into that, and I said to them, I repeated to them the phrase, that every Georgia Bulldog fan typically says about this time of year, about midseason, I've said it. In fact, I have said it so long, it has become an axiom. And the phrase, if you're a Georgia Bulldog football fan, the phrase is this. Hear, hear me out. The phrase is, there's always next year. There's always next year. And, and I don't know why. I'm, I'm such a sucker for all of this. I, I don't know why I do this. I... Uh, I uh, listen to these preseason prognosticators, and they build me up. They give me encouragement. They give me joy. They give me motivation. They talk about these rankings. They talk, me, uh, talk about these players only to go into the season and to have my dreams dashed every single year. There's always next year. And so I was reading a little bit about what's going wrong with Georgia this year. And, um, you know, I was reading that one morning this week during my devotionals. No, not really. I just I was kidding. That's, that's not true. I made that up. And it was talking about the new head coach. And I mean, I like the head coach. He played for Georgia, academic, all-American, and, you know, um, athletic, all, all this. Great, great coach, great record, and all of that. But they're talking about the growing pains that he is experiencing going from an assistant coach, a defensive coordinator. Uh, he was at this other school that, uh, uh, I'm trying to say it. It's, it's does, uh, Alabama. All right, so he, he came from this. Again, no heresy here. This is a Christian church. And uh, so he's come from this school, but he's never been in a position. And the article, the essence of the article was this. Will he continue to be a hands-on coach? 
That was the whole deal. Will he continue? Because he's, you know, as any first head coaching position, there's got to be some course corrections and some adjustments in your learning and all of that, and I can appreciate that. But will he continue to be a hands-on coach? And I don't know. I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. But what made me think about that, because I'd been working on this talk, and I thought, well, I don't know what Kirby Smart is going to do, but I can tell you for certain that Jesus is a hands-on God. He's a hands-on God. He holds all things together. He created all things, and in him all things are held together. He's a hands-on God, and believe it or not, he remains solidly and ultimately in control. David Garland, this New Testament scholar, once more, take a look at this. He said, even those who do not acknowledge Christ's reign and those who actively oppose him are still entirely dependent on him. Isn't that true? Isn't it true? All right. Let's move on. Let's keep going with the passage. Uh, verse 18, you're doing really, really good now on the reading. So I want, you had your coffee. You acknowledged that. You may have had a donut. And God, I forgive you for that. But we're going to go ahead and read verse 18. So let's, let's go. Everybody here, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, what is Paul telling us here? He is telling us that Jesus is the leader and the overseer of the church. Can I just tell you, it is alarming to me. It is alarming to me how easily we take for granted and even lower on our priority list that which matters to Jesus so much, and that is his body, that is his church. And I will believe to my dying day. I will believe to my dying day that the local church, please hear me, friends, that the local church is still the hope of the world. I believe that today. And I know that when I even say that, I know what some of you are thinking. You didn't know I could read your mind. I haven't always been able to do that. I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, Jeff, you say that, and I know why you say that. You say that because you're a pastor. So pastors ought to say something like that. The local church is the hope of the world. But you need to know I haven't always been a pastor. I haven't. Before I was a pastor, I was was a brain surgeon. (laughs) Didn't go really well. That's why I'm a pastor. So long before I was a pastor, I still felt that way, that the local church is the hope of the world. And please, friends, don't ever forget the great opportunity which Jesus has allowed us to be connected to. He has assigned his church a place in this broken, dark, depraved world. And the local church is the hope of the world. I was thinking about that. I I come to the theater early in the morning, meet the teams. We all show up, 7 o'clock, running around getting things done. And then at a certain point, I just know, all right, I got to slip out. I got to go find a quiet place and take the notes and research and stuff that God has helped me with and just sort of beat it into my mind. Because I know I want to talk to you about it, need to talk to you about it. And so I was thinking about this thought, and I just looked up from where I was at, and I'm like, man, the local church is still the hope of the world. And then I, I just started, I looked out of the window because this thought came to me. What would happen if in our community, don't even take it nationally yet, just take, take our own community. What would happen? You imagine this. You imagine. What would happen if in our area... Suddenly, with a swipe of a hand, every church was taken out of this community. No more churches. No more. Every church taken out of this county. Every church taken out of this state, out of the southeast, out of the entire nation. That would be, that would be a world that you would not want to live in. 
Perhaps you will agree with Bill Hybels in a statement that he made, and I for one do, when he says this. He said, without churches so filled with the power of God that they can't help but spill goodness and peace and love and joy into the world, depravity will win the day and evil will flood the world. The local church is still the hope of the world. And I can't help but wonder just how many people right here in our own church family narrowly interpret church based on All right, church, okay, I know what it is. It's a building. That's what church is. And see, I can either get like sort of frustrated with some things that I see or I can talk about it, and I know that you have this incredible openness to to know about what you belong to. And it's my responsibility under God for whatever reason to be able to teach that to you, and I just want you to have this this value, this, this appreciation, this affinity, this love for Christ's body, the way that that God loves the church. Jesus is the leader and the overseer of it, and it matters a whole lot to him. But a lot of times we think, well, church, that's just a building, or we reduce it down to what is the easiest for him to be able to interpret and understand. We say, all right, uh, church, yeah, that's, that's like a 70, in our case, 70 to 75-minute service, and, you know, there's some worship, and, you know, there's a message, and there's, you know, an offering, some announcements, and, and that's church. But I'm telling you, the church is so much bigger and so much broader and so much more wonderful and amazing than that. People sometimes just think that's all there is. And then then furthermore, predetermined as to whether or not they will even show up on the basis of, you know, some people have this attitude and I'm sure it's not you. But I see it and it's like, uh, I'm like, oh man. Oh, I'm like, oh, and I've just probably and say what I need to say and then back off and not say anything that may just be me. But I just see people sometimes just having that attitude. You know what? I will be in church. Count on me. Count on me. I will be in church. You look for me unless something else is going on. And, and then I'm, I'm out. I'm done. And this sends, just so you know, this sends incredibly confusing messages to your kids. If you happen to have small kids or you're a gam- grandparent and, or such and you have any kind of influence with a child, and, and let me tell you where the utter confusion comes in. Because why do you say you're a child? Have you ever had, how many of you have had kids or you have kids, you know, that are in school now? Uh, wave at me like this. I mean, what would you say to little Johnny, little Susie? They look at you and say, I don't want to go to school today tough. You're going. You got to go to school. It is not your choice. So Johnny, you get your clothes on and you get your little books or your little lunch bots or whatever you're going to take with you. You're going to school. This is not optional. And the same parents who will say to their child, and rightly so every day, you're getting up, you're going to school. Well, someday, sometimes look at their kids. They've been saying that three days early. You are going to school. Sunday, I don't think we're going to go today. Oh, we stayed up too late. So much going on. We're going to do this. And I just think, man, how much, how much weeping must Jesus do over that kind of attitude? Jesus says, well, I'll, I'll, unless something else better is going on, count on me. But only. And then I think about my friend. And first met Troy and Jamie at the gym. We built a friendship there. And now others of you have got. And this week, Troy went up to, I think, upstate New York. Is that right? Troy was there and for a friend that had lost his life. And Troy flew up late after work, late part of the week, but he made sure that he was on a plane. You think about this. He's normally in the 930 service. He's a big guy, so I wouldn't cross him. But uh, he normally is in the 930 service, but he caught a flight at 6 a.m. this morning. Why? So that he could be in church right now. 
How many of you think that's amazing? I think you ought to give a guy like Troy a hand. That's the way. And I'm like, Troy gets it right. He gets it right. And we're not here by accident, friends. You think about this. This is not just a building. This is not just a service. We come together, and we gather in Jesus' name, and we gather in his body, and then when we leave this place each week, we do so with his message, and out of these doors, we take his message of love and grace and hope and redemption and how that people can have peace with God and how that people can walk across lines that would normally divide them from other people, and they can love them. It's only the church who on mission with Jesus can ultimately change the world. And it happens one life at a time. And I'm saying to you today, and I'm saying to me today, do not underestimate the intense affection that Jesus has for his church. His church matters to him a whole lot. He gave birth to it. He was willing to die for it. He sustains it. A number of years ago, I ran across a statement by Rick Warren. He just says it so well, and you'll see it on the screen. He says this. He said, remember, it's Christ's church, not ours. Jesus founded the church. He died for the church. He sent his spirit to the church and will someday return for his church. As the owner of the church, he has already established the purposes, and they're not negotiable. He loves his church. This is what Paul is saying. He's the leader, the overseer of it. One last thought. Verses 19 and 20. Look at these verses with me. They're up here on the screen. Verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to, what's that word? Everybody say it with me. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. Read the rest of it with me, all of us. Through his blood shed on the cross. We'd rather not dwell on these words. A lot of people don't want to hear about them, don't want to talk about them. These words found in verse 20, the words blood and cross. But these words are incredibly important. They speak of the death of Jesus in terms of the way it really was, a violent death. There was nothing about the death of Jesus that was anything but violent. Teaching the New Testament, actually, especially the Apostle Paul, who also wrote the passage we're looking at today, he would say, and others would say, it's replete in the Bible, that the cross was reserved for someone who is under a curse. And that is precisely what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He accepted the curse that all of us had upon him, us, and he took it upon himself. And that was the idea. That was the understanding. Anytime somebody would say, see somebody... Uh, being crucified or having been crucified, they would look and there would be this immediate thought, that person was under a curse. Curse is everyone who hangeth on a tree. That they were under a curse. And Jesus was not the only one, just so you know, to be crucified. There were scores who had been crucified before him and after him. In fact, we know of at least two other people that were crucified with Jesus in close proximity to Jesus. So close, in fact, that he could have conversations from where he was nailed under a curse. And Jesus said, but this is what I will do. I will take the curse of the whole world because where is the curse found in? Anytime there's sin, there's a curse. And, and this is not the world, just so you know, that God created. God created this world that was to be a bit spectacular and wonderful, Eden. Eden will one day be restored, but our original parents mess it all up, just as we would have, because instead of saying, I'll do it your way, God, instead they said, I'll do it my way. Sin entered the world. And from Adam and Eve forward, we've been under a curse. Yet Jesus loved us so much, he looked at the whole world, you and me, and he said, but I'll take that curse of every person, who would ever live and breathe 
every person who would ever sin. And I will take it upon myself. He accepted the curse that actually we were under. Death on a cross was usually reserved for the most despicable of offenders, like murderers and assassins and lights. Tim Keller has written this, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed, so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And he did. It was the only way. Because there was this enormous gulf, enormous gulf that sin had produced between God and his creation. And the Bible tells us, friends, that this gulf was so massive that it would take something utterly exceptional to be able to bridge the gap. So what did God do? He looked at a world that he had created and loved, and God sent Jesus to reach sinful people, and he spilled his blood on a cross for us who were under a curse. So now reconciliation and redemption is available to all of his creation. And that's where you and I are. We're only able to be out from under the curse because of what Jesus did, that he went to the cross on our behalf. A number of years ago, I know you know because I've mentioned it enough times that I love to read. I'm always reading. Got something. To, and this is a couple of paragraphs that I read some time ago, but I've never forgotten them, and I brought them with me this morning. I read it, and when I read it the first time, and every time sin, it just struck me so deeply. When Jesus was on the cross paying for our sins, the skeptic standing around mocked and taunted him, saying, and you've read the Bible, you've seen this, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross And of course, this writer said, Jesus ignored them because this wasn't his purpose in coming to the earth. He did not come to save himself. He came to save you and me. And then this writer goes on to say, what have you got to lose by saying yes to Jesus? You know what you'll lose? He said, you'll lose guilt and insecurity and lack of purpose and fear of death and hopelessness and anxiety and you'll lose shame and you'll lose powerlessness and a lot of other baggage that you carry when you attempt to live your life without God's guidance. And God would look at you and he'd look at me and say, I love you so much that this is what I did. Huge gap. No other way. It would take something spectacular, amazing, exceptional. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reveal myself. Jesus comes. If you see me, you've seen the Father. He gave birth to the church. And he loved the church. And he loves you and me so much. That he would go through, I mean, after the flogging, after the beating, which was utterly humane, that he would be nailed. And people for three hours would watch him die of slow suffocation and tremendous blood loss to the point that it was all over. We needed it because we were flawed. But as Keller said, he loved us so much, he was glad to do it. He's glad to do that for you. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Don't want anybody sneaking out. We're, I know where we're at. We're ahead of schedule. We're only 61 minutes into the service, and we're almost done. The band is going to come. We're going to do one last song in just a moment. But before they come, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your own life, and I want you to think about the life of Jesus and everything that Jesus did for you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to bring you into a relationship with himself. He, loved you, he loves you so much that he went to the cross for you. He bled and died for you. And he did it not begrudgingly. He did it joyfully because he knew that that is the only way that the chasm, that the chasm could be closed and that he would give his life. 
So while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're here today and you'd say, you know what? I want to receive Jesus into my life. I want to receive him as my savior. I want to receive him as the leader of my life. I know that I've sinned. If you're like me, you'd admit, I've not only sinned, I've sinned hundreds of times and I need the forgiveness of Jesus. And he's willing to. I want to be adopted into the family of Jesus and he's willing to. I need Jesus to give me direction and guidance for my life, and he's willing to. I need Jesus to give me the assurance in my life that one day when my life comes to an end and I wake up, that I'm going to wake up in a place called heaven and not hell. He wants to do that. He's just waiting on you. He's done everything he could do. Now he waits. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm not going to isolate you, not going to bring you down front, not going to walk up to you. My, I'm just going to have you raise your hand so I know who you are and where you are. My heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and you just lift your hand and say, I want to receive Jesus. I want to receive Christ into my life. I know that he bled and died for me, and I want to receive him today. I want to know. I want to know my sins are forgiven, that I'm in right state. Just lift your hand. Lift it up real high. It's dark in here, and I'm going to look around for just a moment, and I see your hand right back here. And I see your hand right over here as well. And I see your hand right there. And I see your hand right in the back. And I'm looking. I see your hand right over here. Keep it up for just a moment. See your hand back there. And you can put it down right where you're at. Would you just pray this prayer with me? Jesus, thank you. You came into the world. You showed us who God is. And you, we see the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And you, we know that you give us guidance. And you, you bridge the gap because you went to the cross on our behalf. And you died in our place to pay off our sin debt in full. And we thank you for that. And we praise you for that. And right now, we receive you. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all that is wrong. We invite you into our life. And with your help, we will live for you all of our days. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Can we just give the Lord some praise? Can we put our hands together? and give him some praise. Hey, would you do this? We got a great song. I don't want you to leave. I want everybody to stay here. After this song, I'm coming back up and I'm going to close this out in prayer. And listen, just in case you're thinking, because I know I'm looking at the clock. I look at it every week. I look at it. We're ahead of schedule. If you say, I think I'm going to slip out. Don't do that. You know why? I'm going to stand at the door and I'm going to say, mm, get what? What? I'm not going to do that, but I want you to stay with us. I'm going to come back and pray. It's a great, great song, and then it tells what we've been talking about. And I want you to worship God, and I want you to love God, and I want you to think about it while we sing it.
voice lifted up. There's hope. There is hope in the promise of the cross. You gave everything to save the world you love. And this hope is the anchor for my soul. Our God will stand unshakable. trust you because your name is higher your name lifted up is greater and all my hope is in you come on we can trust his name your word unfailing your promise unshaken and all my hope is in you that's it church lifted up this morning because your name Shake 
we pray at the end of this service right now, I'll never forget this passage one time. This guy's standing around and, and Jesus has just said some of these outrageous things. And some of them walked away. And Jesus looked at the rest who are remaining. There was not nearly as many. And he looked at them and he heard them say, hey, God, what's up with that? What do you mean by that? Jesus said, you know, are you going to go? Or are you going to take off with all of the rest? And they said, Lord, where else do we go? And that's what I, I think about. Where else do we go, friends? That's our hope. He's our anchor. He's our rock. Where is you going to put your hope today? We put it in him. He's an anchor for our soul. He's the hope of the world. And he cares about you. And Father, we thank you for this day. Where else do we go? Who else could we ever turn to? Why would we ever want to turn? Our hope and confidence is in you, God. You infuse that into our life, into our being. And we give you praise. Thank you, God, for what you've done among us today. Thank you that you love us and care for us. And you are helping us to become all that you intended that we would be. And for that, we give you great praise. Everybody said amen. Let's give him one more big hand clap before we're done. We praise you, God. We bless you, God. There's nobody like you. God bless you, everybody. I love you. Thank you for being here. See you right back here next Sunday.